Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President Craig LeClaire and Principal Analyst Leslie Joseph to discuss how organizations can scale their automation efforts and specifically RPA. Welcome both. Great to be here. Thank you. I think it would just be helpful, and I feel like I start so many episodes this way, but let's just level set on the current state of the RPA market and what you both are seeing today. Yeah, the market has headwinds and tailwinds, like like everything today, it seems. Uh, you know, there is, uh, as, as both Leslie and I have written about, uh, going to be a surge in investment in automation um, post-pandemic, uh, probably bringing us out of as we pull out of the recession, there'll be a surge in investment in, in exactly this type of pragmatic automation that RPA is famous for. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you look at our recent uh, research from Andrew Bartels uh, on the economic forecast, uh, uh, particularly for IT spending, there's going to be a um, essentially a cap or decline in, 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 in discretionary spending for IT projects. So these things will work against each other. Uh, at some level, but um, you know the the market uh, seems to be holding well, and uh, the the companies are growing, and the inquiries are up for for uh, you know particularly since um, the pandemic on how to use RPA to um, you know to you know achieve um, you know cost reduction and and the efficiencies that you need, particularly in a recession. Leslie, do you do you, do you see the same thing? Absolutely, and I think uh, Craig to uh, to nuance that a little bit. I think what was happening even before the recession in the near uh, past uh, has been that off late, the RPA market has started getting a little more nuanced. Uh, the first wave of RPA companies that tried out RPA, you know, four years, three years ago and closer to our time were typically very large banks or very large uh, captives of large companies that were really willing to go through the process of trial and error to figure this new technology out because you know not everybody had the answers and everybody was trying to figure out what it would do and what were the best practices around you know governing it managing uh, automation at that scale um, but off late over the last year year and a half we've started to see uh, a few new participants come into the market, which are largely these newer kinds of companies that um, are fairly smaller or maybe coming from different geographical regions like Latin America or uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and uh, or maybe even you know different sizes of companies from the large banks and retailers that you know that first started RPA. And for them, the needs have evolved to the point where they're not necessarily willing to go through. Uh, I mean, they've bought into the hype, right? So they understand that RPA can be a value to them, but they don't necessarily want to go through the pain of figuring everything out on their own. Um, so there's this whole need and ask from the market to kind of be a little more simple and easy to implement and to make more sense in the context of specific businesses and specific business processes. And that's, you know, to add to 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 support Craig's point, I think uh, that has all gotten a tremendous push because COVID-19 has really made automation a boardroom imperative and everybody now wants to do automation in some form or the other to reduce cost and to manage risk. And that's really changing the market a little bit. You know, we've been talking in the RPA market for years about its growing intelligence, how it's going to embed analytics, make those digital workers uh, able to handle more variation. Uh, to move up the uh, sort of chain of AI and intelligence. 
And the pandemic has really pushed that in some very interesting ways. Um, we've seen more activity in um, the what we're calling intelligent uh, document extraction um, and the platforms that support that, IDEP. And one of the leading platform areas are the RPA platforms that have taken natural language processing. Um, they're combining it with their native talent of computer vision and surface um, automation and spatial intelligence and are doing a really wonderful job of uh, going into documents, going into forms, going into emails, and being able to extract much cleaner and more efficient data sets, which then can be used for sentiment analytics and fraud and, and basically for uh, you know, creating much uh, more rapid, uh, you know, more efficient, uh, more end-to-end more -end production uh, you know, capabilities. So um, it, it's interesting that this surge is is really starting to push RPA in that uh, intelligent direction that we would have been talking about for some time. So this sounds like all the makings for a massive expansion of RPA, demands up during COVID-19, new applications, et cetera. But I know you both have, have made the comment and research has, has shown that a lot of firms are still not necessarily making the shift from pilot of RPA to full-scale RPA so easily or quickly. What's that all about? Is that a safe assumption or is that a, is that a true statement? Um, and what do you attribute that to? So, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, and in fact, our research, of course, before COVID um, showed that um, 52% of all companies that have tried RPA are still below 10 bots, which is actually pretty small uh, in terms of implementation size. And uh, when we think about all the reasons for why companies uh, aren't able to scale, which is, the, by the way, the biggest problem with RPA today, um, we see that there are, at different levels of scale, different factors that come into play to prevent or to kind of act as a barrier to further growth. So at the first, very first um, set of problems that arise are typically process problems. You know, companies that just start out, they struggle to find the right processes to uh, be able to build the right business cases around these processes that make sense and then kind of drive them forward uh, into a successful RPA program that kind of uh, pays for itself over the first year or so. Uh, in my research and in my interviews with customers, I've often found that uh, the success or the failure of the first set of uh, processes that companies choose to uh, automate usually decides whether the RPA program will get funded after the first year or not. So that's the biggest initial impediment. Once you go beyond that, um, the second typical uh, area where companies uh, stumble is, okay, so we've got a bunch of automations running. How do we govern them? And um, many companies often fall into this trap of getting into you know, different RPA deployments across the organization, what we call islands of automation that just autom you know, automatically spring up in completely different LOBs or geographies or functions within the, the company. And then you know, they don't really integrate very well. They have different standards. Um, and uh, at some point, they all come up to the CIO's door and it's the CIO's problem now to, you know, to manage it and to integrate all of it. And that's really the second place where um, companies struggle. And this is not to say that once you cross the process uh, issue that goes away, that still persists, but governance becomes a, an, an even more kind of important, bigger hurdle. 
Um, and then companies that are able to cr cross the, hur the hurdle of governance, typically they start encountering issues of culture because that's when you, you're starting to talk about automation at a certain uh, scale and that requires a different mindset in the organization. It, it requires the support of, of your people. You can't just uh, you know, uh, roll automations over your people and expect that, uh, that everything will be fine. There's backlash, there's the need to involve your people and seek their help in creating automations and uh, allowing RPA to proliferate, finding new use cases and so on. And so those are typically the three places where uh, I have seen companies um, stumble on their march to, uh, to RPA success. These sound awfully familiar, <laughs> I must say, right? These are the, the stumbling blocks of almost any new technology, aren't they? Or is there something unique here to RPA? No, I would say that's a fair comment that it is uh, you know, new technologies as it emerges has to get figured out. Uh, it's usually brought in by maybe a, a more innovative uh, area of a company. And then you have the issues of um, of governance and technology management being involved too late as it comes in on the business side. We're seeing more and more of that. So I think it is it is fairly typical. Uh, there are some aspects of RPA that, that, that give it kind of uh, special issues, uh, namely the use of human credentials uh, that have to be you know, managed uh, you know, in a very secure way for which we're just trying to figure out what are those access management policies that might apply to digital workers that have human credentials. Um, you know, how are they uh, provisioned and how are they stored and when do they match up with the automation in the best way? And, and of course you have the, you know, as again, as we move into the, this next period, you know, you have much more concern about job loss. Uh, you have, you know, with human in the loop aspects, uh, you know, digital workers, you know, are very much interacting with humans and more and more and in more and more intelligent ways. And as they embrace machine learning to augment their intelligence and so forth, you start to get into the interesting human in the loop issues, which I think give it a special character as well. What we try to do is, is look at the companies that are doing it in the best way possible and figure out, uh, you know, what are those practices that we can then pass on to our clients. And when you look at um, those companies that have scaled, there, there are a couple of things that are very consistent. You know, one is they have an organized, uh, what we call strike teams, which are uh, essentially centers of excellence, but uh, that's maybe too heavy a word for innovation around automation that really is going to be driven more by the business than by a central technology management group. It may be started and, and sort of run by enterprise architects and technology management. It's very much more of a, uh, decentralized. Uh, you know, RPA is inherently more federated than lots of certainly enterprise applications and, and certainly traditional process areas that have tended to be, you know, development projects by deep application development expertise company. These RPA uh, tools are, um, you know, really designed uh, to build relatively simple automations and have it be done by the business. So there's an inherent federation. So the companies are doing it well. Um, have used these strike teams to create a template for how uh, new automation ideas are exposed and generated from the business and how they go through a set of chevrons or gates so that you can do a business case. Um, you know, you can take that idea from the whiteboard, at, you know, in some accounts payable department and in some remote part of the uh, enterprise, you know, and put that into um, a crowdsourcing environment or, or some way to surface that have that strike team look at it. If it has merit, if it meets sort of this initial design authority, 
Um, and we have, you know, published um, things like uh, RPA using the rule of five to kind of give you that initial fit for RPA uh, related to a, you know, a use case uh, and then put it through much more serious, um, you know, vetting, uh, including what we just wrote about uh, digital worker analytics software, which allows you to, um, you know, put listening agents on hundreds and hundreds of workstations and have the uh, human inputs and outputs that are being recorded for an hour, you know, pulled into an analytics environment so that the machine learning can give you the, the, the common set of steps across hundreds and hundreds of uh, humans working towards the same output. And that is your target for building the automation. And uh, that can then proceed into design. So companies that have built this sort of process uh, within a strike team, um, have been able to get a pipeline of automations and start to build and deploy them at scale in parallel. And those are the ones that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bots in production. So that's our, our main advice to companies on how to deal with these, the issues that Leslie so well uh, described re, you know, related to governance and so forth, you know, is to organize um, you know, around a set of standard processes in the company. Well, I think what Leslie was also describing was this sort of like bottoms up or disparate things happening. And, you know, Craig, you mentioned this sort of center of excellence or strike teams. How does the current state of affairs play into firms managing automation as like a portfolio or more holistically? Does RPA, is that just a piece of that puzzle or how do those two things jive? Well, um, there's going to be a fair amount of portfolio rationalization, shall we say, as, as we move into this next period. So there's going to be a more holistic look at all the automations and not just in the automation area, but in your syndicated data usage and your, you know, in your cloud-based service uh, contracts and so forth and your BPO and outsourcing. There's going to be this rationalization that's going to go on. Um, and, and, and RPA, we will go through that. There are companies that have you know, three or four or five RPA tools already in their organization. And uh, they're not all going to stand up, uh, not only to be able to get these sort of more more governed processes around them, uh, but but also just to not have to support multiple solutions. So I'm not sure I got to your question there, but maybe Leslie has a different take on it. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. So one of the things that we're very clear about is that automation is going to be, uh, it's going to rise after, you know, in whatever comes next. Uh, and so in a sense, yes, the rationalization will happen, uh, but that's a good thing in some sense because uh, companies have suffered from automation sprawl for quite a while now and they continued you, you, just before COVID, they were, there was a lot of this going on still. And that was one of the reasons, one of the blockers for why companies could not scale automation. But now um, one of the things that uh, we pointed out uh, as we wrote our research around um, the impact of COVID-19 on automation is that this is the time to really retest and rescope a lot of the plans that you had made for automation because now there's going to be a lot more support from the top because cost and risk become uh, you know come under the spotlight under the under the magnifying glass and at this point some of that that rationalization should happen and it makes sense as automation becomes something more strategic than it was before and RPA becomes a you know RPA is in a sense the tip of the spear for a lot of uh, companies that are trying to get into automation because it's um, and I'm kind of you know saying this with air quotes here, uh, mindful of the fact that it's not always easy, but it feels like the easiest way to get into automation if you've never done it before. Um, 
And, um, but with that comes, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And now as you spread, this is the time to kind of take stock of how do you want to do it in the context of a portfolio in a broader sense. So one of the other things that you all both have talked about this a good bit is the concept of using RPA for innovation. I think it's an interesting topic at, at this moment because obviously many firms aren't really thinking about innovation. They may be thinking about survival a little bit more. Um, but for those that can think about innovation and use this time as an opportunity to innovate, that feels like a big shift, right? Uh, kind of dabbling in RPA, using some of it, maybe getting some efficiencies out of it. That mind shift to switch into, okay, this is going to be a source of true innovation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What, what does it take to, to kind of jump over that hurdle, if you will, and start really using RPA at scale and also to innovate and change the way they're doing things rather than just automate the things that they're doing? So I'm going to tell you a story here, and Craig's heard me uh, say the story before, but this gentleman joined his job in the basement of an iconic Singapore hotel. And his job was, you know how when you make a reservation online to stay at a hotel, it has to get transferred into the hotel system. So the, the email goes into a, an inbox that is manned by somebody like this gentleman's job used to be, and it has to be manually copied into the hotel's system. So um, this gentleman basically figured out that he could download a free software RPA tool, free version of an RPA tool and automate his entire job. And that's exactly what he did. And he sat tight for three months and uh, then somebody figured out that this was what he was doing. And uh, guess what they did? They made him head of automation. What we're now starting to see is that when companies start to look at automation, when they look at RPA, it's both top down to some extent, but there's also a big bottom up uh, element to it, which is essentially people figuring out that, hey, here's a part of my job uh, that I can automate. And that creates, if done well, and if supported by the right kind of culture that enables this automation mindset, really helps this, this capability, this enables this bottom up innovation to thrive because you're essentially giving people the tools to make their work life better in a sense and that really create people enjoy this right people people don't want to sit you know for four hours in a day you know entering stuff uh, and moving data from one place to the other that's that's boring but if, if you take that away and you give them a tool that allows them to reduce that by half or, or, or three quarters you know they want that and th that allows them to deploy their energy and their focus on other more interesting things. And so that is a huge source of, of, of potential innovation for uh, many companies. Yeah, Leslie, I, I love that story. And uh, I had a similar call, you know, a couple of months ago, I guess it was a month ago, it was in, the, in the height of the pandemic. It was a nonprofit and all, uh, there are a thousand employees, uh, 800 of them um, could not work in their normal way because it required face-to-face -face support. Um, so the um, uh, CTO basically gave them all uh, bot studios, uh, the 800, and said, um, you know, uh, build uh, bots um, and we'll give you some training and, uh, you know, try to automate things that you don't like in your job or things that you think you could, you, you know, you would make you a better employee doing what you're doing. Um, and he joked to me, he said, if I can get 5% of the <laughs> bots back that are doing good things, that'll be a huge win. Um, so I think there, there are a lot of interesting approaches to, you know, to get to innovation. Um, and I, I, I believe that what's really interesting about, it was sort of accidental, but the way RPA platforms developed 
they, they had to build an orchestration, an event management orchestration layer. And they needed to do that because they needed to get the macros that started the business years and years ago where when it was sleepy and didn't go anywhere, they, they needed a way to house centrally the automations that were on the desktop. You remember the days of uh, Excel macros and Word macros and so forth, they just sit on the desktop. So they built a central repository and management capability. And then they said, well, we have to be, get really good at scheduling these, these robots and these automations. So then they built a scheduling uh, you know, layer with analytics and reporting and everything else. So all of a sudden, they seem to have one of the best architectures for linking uh, different or, uh, analytics building blocks in, in very coordinated ways to create kind of an AI integration or fabric. So you may go to machine learning in the cloud uh, to, get, to, get, to, to get your decision management done. Uh, and you may have to link that with dispatching digital workers from the central repository, or you may go out and um, you know link in some uh, text analytics to go in and rip through documents and emails to make sense of them and create normalized data sets. Um, so there's a lot of really innovative things that you can do with with these platforms that are really in their infancy in terms of the orchestration, which we believe that due to this islands, uh, and to Sharon's point, uh, these issues of islands have been around for a long time. We've been talking about silos for a long time, but kind of the next level of concern um, isn't just coordinating your, your information um, you know, uh, silos and databases, but it's, it's coordinating and linking your automations together. Uh, because the, the, the likely scenario is that they will be coming from the public cloud, from small ISVs. They'll be coming from embedded RPA analytics, and you're going to need a way to coordinate, manage, and report on those. And it sounds like if you've got the right culture of innovation and you've got employees that feel safe, it's going to come from the employees across your organization. So being able to find them and be able to coordinate them is going to be critical. It strikes me that culture has got to be a big piece of this puzzle. Um, you know, those two stories that you both just outlined highlight a, an environment where the employees do feel safe. They feel like it's completely fine to automate away part of my job, you know, um, and it just means I'll have a, something more interesting to do. I won't lose my job. Um, is that a safe assumption? And is that part of the secret sauce here of creating that culture so that then you can unleash some of these new opportunities? Well, that's a tricky question. There's no question that for a set of employees that their experience will be elevated by taking these lower value, more mundane uh, tasks and, and giving them to robots. So it's been said extracting the robotic activity out of the humans to allow humans to be more human and to do the things that only humans do well. So there's no question that um, a segment of employees um, will, will get that and they will be elevated. But there's no way to ignore the reality that there will be automation deficits and that there will be a reduced um, workforce uh, we're seeing that now with we have historic uh, unemployment at what 13, 14 percent in the U.S. right now. Um, you know, a, a, every job um, cycle recession we've had in the last three, it takes longer and longer for the um, employment to reach the pre-recession levels. In the last one, 2008-9, it took almost four years. Uh, to get to the pre-recession employment levels. And a lot of that is due to investment in automation that comes under 
duress, under panic, under survival mode, and we're going to be seeing a lot of that. So there's going to be, um, you know, a um, significant set of less happy employees, uh, and there's going to be a a need to monitor uh, anxiety that uh, may occur in employees who are now are interacting in more intelligent and faster ways with machines, uh, and that can introduce issues, um, as well as the fear of, of, of job loss. So it's going to be a mixed bag. Uh, I don't think the narrative that it's all going to be elevation is the right one. I don't think the narrative that it's all going to be gloom and doom uh, and, and, and loss of job is the right one. I think that's the real challenge that companies face is looking at their workforce and kind of understanding this mix um, and 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 what sort of change management they need to really deal with it. Yeah, there's a there is a, a there is a demographic angle to it as well, um, I guess, um, because there are um, you know younger members of the workforce who um, are typically you know have grown up around digital tools and uh, you know are much more comfortable learning these new skills. And so uh, what what I've seen happen a lot um, especially in uh, scaled rpa deployments if you look at uh, you know offshore captives for example which are a huge market for rpa relatively younger bunch of uh, of uh, employees and these um, people these these workers they're much more eager and willing to kind of retrain themselves from whatever jobs they might have done before to kind of become part of autom the automation process to become RPA developers, to become process experts and what have you. Um, now, this is not going to continue. This is not going to infinitely sustain itself because I think uh, it's fair to say that I've seen, you know, in early stages, some of these uh, situations up to uh, 30, 40, 50, even at, some, at, at one point, 80% of the people who were retrenched by RPA kind of come back into the automation process. But th there's only so much that you can, that that gives, right? There's a point beyond which um, things are going to peter out, and long term, as as Craig pointed out, you know, automation is not just it's not just here for a while, and you know, it's not you can't wish it away. It's going to have very Im impactful uh, dents on kind of the workforce as we go forward. And uh, so, I think there are a lot. There's a there is a demographic perspective to it, wherein younger uh, members of the workforce are more open and willing to embrace automation and be a part of it but there's also a long tail of people who aren't and won't be for a while so knowing that there is a a lot of guidance and and both of you have written a, a fair amount of research on solutions to scale rpa we haven't gone through that all of that here but what would your one piece of advice be to to leaders, to firms who have started an RPA program but have have stalled out, or they're just not getting over, you know, that that ten bot hump, so to speak? From my perspective, the main piece of advice is to take a broader perspective. However, you is best to organize within your company, whether it is a strike team, whether it's a center of excellence, whether it is just business as usual, you know, have um, a broader view of automation and, and help the business align the right automation with the right use case. And to do that, you need a, a broader view of, the, of, of your toolbox. Uh, and I think that's a really good starting point is to take a look at the, the really the 19 different um, and you know areas of automation technology, some of which have been around for decades, um, that that should be in that view. 
So that, that'd be my one uh, takeaway from this. Yeah, and I'd add to that, I think when companies embark on RPA, while it is usually uh, early stages, it's tactical, uh, you know, companies approach it in a very tactical manner. But I think the one piece of advice that I would have um, is, to, is the fact that RPA allows, because it's just what it is, uh, the ability for companies as they implement it to really relook uh, their processes and uh, the the body of work that their employees perform, um, and really look at it from a from the perspective of you know customer in, um, you know processes are hairy things they, they accrete all sorts of detritus over time variations and um, and when you try to automate a process that is already broken or that is already tangled. Um, you're you're only magnifying the opportunity for for things to crash and burn but then if you take this as an opportunity to think about all your processes and take a, a customer in view of what the right flows must be and how, how what's the best way to standardize and automate them that's really the path to kind of ensuring that every single automation uh, creates the kind of value that you're hoping that it will and so this is a great tool coming back to what we were talking about we said innovation right so one of the pieces of innovation here is to really think about uh, what is the right way to perform the work that we perform before we kind of go ahead and automate roughshod over whatever we have. Great. Thank you both for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.